0: I've entitled my thoughts this morning, Working While Waiting, Working While Waiting. I appreciated the prayer that was offered before the message this morning, especially the petition to God to be with those who are in countries where Christianity is not welcome. In fact, countries where Christianity is illegal because other religions or perhaps no religion runs the country, and the faith is simply not welcome in the persecution that Christians face. I believe that as we come to the close of the message today, some of the thoughts that we share at that point from the book of Matthew chapter 10 will be relevant to situations such as that. It speaks to situations such as that. And so I appreciate it very greatly, and to me it was a confirmation about the thoughts that we have on our heart and our mind today. Last week together we focused on the phrase let go and let God with a special emphasis on the words let God. And as you know, as we said, biblically we can't let God. That's not a statement that is biblically accurate. We can't let God do anything because God is greater than us. We don't have power to let God do things. We we don't have the authority over Him. We don't have strength greater than His strength. God can do anything that He wants to do, and we know that anything that He wants to do will be in accordance with His nature. He never wants to do anything that is contrary to His revealed nature. He is holy and righteous. He's a God of judgment and justice. He is good. In Him is light and no darkness. But anything that God wants to do, God will do. After all, He is God. From Scripture, we learn that God cannot fail, nor can He be discouraged. There's never a time in the history of creation when God attempted to do something and failed to do that. But God will, as we read in Daniel, for He works His will among the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, "'What doest thou?' In other words, God doesn't even answer to anyone. We love to think in America that everyone answers to us, right? Maybe that's a side effect of uh, the representative republic style of democracy that we have, where our leaders answer to us. But we have to remember when it comes to God, God is not an elected official. God wasn't put into authority by the electorate of America or the world or by the agreeing of the universe, but God is king. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the judge. He's the ruler. And we don't have to go but to Genesis 1 to see that clearly depicted in the Word of God. As God is introduced to us, He is the Lord God who reigns in heaven and in earth. Now, as we talked about Most people mean well when they make that statement, when they say, let go and let God. They don't really think or intend to convey that they have or any other person has authority over God. They know that God, in their heart of hearts, in in all sincerity, they know that God cannot be allowed to do something, that He is God after all. But what they mean when they say that is to cast your care upon Him, To cease trusting in your own understanding and to trust in Him and acknowledge Him and He'll guide your paths. Maybe the synonym that we used last week, a preferable statement, to wait on the Lord, is one that we can just say, let go and wait on the Lord. And that would be so much more biblical and so much more fitting, but it's really what most people mean when they make a statement such as that. As we talked about waiting on the Lord last week, and this is bringing us up to the thoughts that we want to begin sharing with you today, I offered the clarification that there are many things in life that we are to do despite the exhortations to wait on the Lord. And we are to wait patiently on the Lord, wait patiently on His deliverance. You can look up those words in a concordance, as we said last week, wait. Just simply look up the word wait. And see how many times God's people are described as those who wait on Him, as those who are exhorted to wait on Him, the many exhortations to wait on the Lord, to wait on God. That is something that's biblical. And you find that language the most when people are going through persecution. When David wrote so many times to wait on the Lord, this is the man that at times in his life, he was on the run from King Saul. He was battling against the Philistines. There were hills and valleys in his life, troubles in his life, issues with sin in his life. And so perhaps more than many other people in the world, David knew what it meant to wait on the Lord because he's literally at times on the run as a young man from the most powerful person in his nation, King Saul. A man that had been rejected by God as king because of his disobedience to God. His perpetual blunders resulted in Saul being rejected as king, and David is anointed the next king of Israel. And so, Saul and his jealousy, you know, women say Saul kills his thousands, but David is 10,000. Saul is moved with jealousy, and he attempts to kill David, tries to strike him with a javelin. He sets out to kill him, and Jonathan and David's wife, Michael. M-I-C-H-A-L, not the male version, but a female version of that name. They reason with him over and over, and David is continually waiting on God for deliverance from King Saul. We are to wait on the Lord, but despite that, there are many, many areas of life in which we are to work. Now, I gave you some examples of that last week, we would all agree that it is nonsense if you are hungry and you are sitting in your living room and you haven't eaten in two days and there's food in the fridge for someone to say, brother, you look weak and hungry, you need to eat. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Is God going to come into your house and make you a sandwich? God is not going to come into your house and make you a sandwich. Now, there were times when people wondered three days On the countryside with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had no food, and they were hungry, and Jesus took the loaves of the fishes, and he multiplied it, and he fed them. But most of the time, nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine point nine nine times out of a million, we have to get up and do something about the situation that we're in. We wait on the Lord, but that doesn't mean that is not mutually exclusive from doing the things that we need to do in our own personal lives, in a practical sense, in a, in a provisional sense, in a spiritual sense. We, we don't sit around waiting on the Lord to learn the Bible. We open the Bible and we read the Bible. This morning at 10:30, worship began here, and that took preparation. It took getting in your car. How many of you went to bed last night and said, you know, I hope that I can worship tomorrow, but I'm just going to wait on the Lord if he gets me up on time and somehow he gets my hair combed and my teeth brushed and my clothes on. I guess I'll make it there one way or the other, but he's really just going to have to transport me to the building via teleportation. No, that would be nonsense. If I said that to you or if you said that to another one of you or to me, honestly, we would question your sanity, If I said, I haven't eaten in three days, I'm waiting on the Lord to make me a sandwich, you would think I had lost my mind. And there are many things in the world that while we wait on the Lord, we are to be active in the doing. We are to work. God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. There's a lot of doing that we need to do each and every day in our lives. If you had an infection and the doctor prescribes you antibiotics and they're sitting in your cabinet, what sense would it make when the time comes to take medicine to say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord? you got medicine in the cabinet, go take medicine. If you have a headache, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord, take the ibuprofen. I heard a great point this morning on the radio about Naaman the Syrian who was stricken with leprosy and God sends a message to him, go bathe in that water over there. And the messenger offends him. He says, I don't want to go and do that. And, you know, go do. Don't don't sit here saying, I'm going to wait on the Lord when God's given you a way to deal with it and to handle it and take care of it. Just go deal with it. And that applies to us every day in our lives. We wait on the Lord. We trust in the Lord. We lean not unto our ununderstanding. We acknowledge him in all our ways. But he guides our what? He guides our paths. What do you do on a path? You walk on a path. We rely on God's providence, but we remember that we are to ask, seek, and knock. Asking is only the first part in our daily lives as we think about our needs and the various things that we go through in life. We ask, but then we seek, and then we knock. If we're ever in need of employment, we ask, yes, we pray to God, but then we seek and then we knock. We go looking and we go knocking. We go looking and we go knocking. Now, as we're getting to the point today, the main focus that we want to share with you pertains to the atmosphere of church culture. Now, we're giving you everyday sort of examples. You get up and you go to work, and it's something that you do. If I need income and and my family can't pay the bills, if something happens, I go and I look for work, I apply for a job, I go do that work, and the whole time i I pray to God, I thank God, but there's a lot of doing that I have to do. I think whether it be little children, you know, it's time to brush your teeth Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Can't you hear a five-year-old saying that when it's time to take a bath and brush their teeth? I'm waiting on the Lord, Mom. If I have clean teeth, the Lord's going to have to do it because I just don't have No, get in there and brush your teeth, boy. An example from the Old Testament of that that powerfully makes the point that we do things by the strength that God gives us as we wait on Him, but it involves much to do, is simply Israel leaving Egypt, going into Canaan's land. As they go into Canaan's land, God fought their battles for them in a sense. They were mighty in military prowess in a sense. They conquered Nations that were mightier than they were, and yet God is blessing that to work, but they still have to go and fight the battles. They go into Jericho, and this is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they were afraid to go in and do the work. They were afraid. Well, we don't really believe God is with us. We don't really believe He's going to bless us. There are giants in the land. The grape clusters are so great. It takes two men to carry them. They're so large. This is a land overflowing with milk and honey. We don't think we can take it. So we're afraid. And as we said last week, God does not allow them to go into Canaan's land. Everybody over the age of 20 dies in the wilderness, except for the two men that believe, Caleb and Joshua. These people go into Canaan's land. And the first place they come to is Jericho. And God gives them unusual commandments for the destruction of Jericho. He doesn't say, you know, send your covert ops in first that they can begin battling out on the inside while the rest of you surrounds it. Don't draw them out and then flank them and come at them from another angle. No. He says, you surround the city and for a week you go around it and you go around it. And then all of a sudden I want you guys to scream and blow trumpets and the next thing you know the walls crumble. That doesn't look like the way we would fight wars today. Well, God is telling them that even though you're doing things, it's my strength, it's my design, it's my might, it's my purpose in the world. But they still had to go surround Jericho. They still had to do something. Israel conquered Canaan by the Lord, but Israel still had to fight. They still had to go to battle. And their entire existence, their entire existence as a physical nation as it was up until the Babylonian captivity. You know, it begins as Israel, then it splits into Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdom. The entire time, they're repelling invading militaries. You read through the books of history from Joshua onward, up until captivity, and it's one battle after another. Canaan's land is a great picture, by the way, of the church and our life in this world. Because our lives in this world have many battles that are to be faced. Now, when we get to glory, which Canaan's land is, in one sense, an ultimate picture of, when we get to glory, there's no more hills, there's no more valleys, there's no more battles, there are no more enemies, but it's a place where every enemy of God, and thereby every enemy that you truly have, is expelled, is sent away into the lake of fire, and there will be with Christ in a land with no more battles. No more issues, no more struggles, and it will be grand and glorious so that all the suffering in this world isn't even worthy to be compared with the glory of that world. Now, you just think about the last two years. Think about the troubles that this world has seen. Think about right now, this very second, as a Category 4 storm on the 16th year of Hurricane Katrina is bearing down on New Orleans. Think about the people that you know that are struggling with illness. A dear couple in, this, in our faith community in a church not 15 miles away lost a son to cancer last night. A friend of mine several states away had a mother who had surgery and lost her beloved mother. There's always suffering and pain in the world. Add all that together and it's not worthy to be compared with the glory of that world. That world has no struggles, it has no sorrows, it has no suffering. And the child of God, as they reflect on that in grief and suffering and trials, we are saved by the hope of that day because we anticipate it, we yearn for it. That's what biblical hope is. We hope for that day, we anticipate that day, we yearn for that day, we expect that day. And that feeling, that peace that passeth understanding, It saves us in the affliction. And so, back to the example, Israel conquered Canaan by the Lord, but they had to fight. We have happy homes through God, but we have to work for peace in the home. I trust God provides us a living, but we must apply for jobs and go to work. The examples just go on and on and on. Remember this statement, Waiting on the Lord is no excuse for laziness. Waiting on the Lord is no excuse for laziness. In the same book of Proverbs that we read from last week that says to wait on the Lord, we are taught to work. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Now, Rachel and I were talking this morning about judgment and calamity and how so many times in the Old Testament God would send various types of judgments whether it be a sickness or a plague or a military that invades and conquers or natural disasters and how even in that God is good and God is holy and God is righteous. And the statement that Rachel made is, well, because God is holy and we're sinners, it's not wrong when God does something that we think is mean in a judgment. And the point that I made was, you know, think about it. Nobody, when you step on an ant, says you morally reprehensible person, that poor ant. But then the thought occurred to me, Scripture actually commends the ant more than the sinner. And so if if anything, the ant is to be commended. And we step on them every day, and they don't have sin. They're not transgressors of God's law. But the same book of Proverbs that says to wait on the Lord also says to consider the ant to the sluggard to go and to work. Now, as we begin to transition into our main focus today, a healthy church atmosphere, I want us to have that mentality, that balance in mind that to have a healthy church, to have a growing church, we have to wait on the Lord because the Lord added daily such as should be saved, but we also have to remember the work of the church, what the church is to be in the world, and... As it is in the world, it is in the local community. God did not make a global institution to be ruled by one major archbishop the way that we see it in some denominations. But God made Christ set up a grassroots, organic network of individual congregations that grow their best in persecution as they do their work and they worship God, as it were, underground. Now, when I was a little kid and somebody would say underground, I really thought it was a network of underground pipes. So we talked about the underground railroad when, when we were in fourth grade social studies and Alabama history and you hear about the underground railroad. And in my mind, in my mind, I thought there was an underground train. And all the slaves got on it and escaped. That's not really what underground means. You know what it means. I know what it means. But it means this hidden network where things take place out of sight. And by virtue of that, you have explosive growth that is out of sight of the persecuting tyrants, whether it be an underground railroad or the underground growth of the church in places like China or Iran or North Korea or Afghanistan. God created, Christ set up a church that does its best work underground. Now that's something that we can tap into as Primitive Baptists that, that I don't believe that we really understand the power of what we have. In a day when church is theatrical and it's all about coming into a coliseum and Seeing a speech and seeing a band play and experiencing a rock concert, do you know how God's people in this country yearn for real, vibrant, personal, family Christianity? You've got something in this church that people in this community yearn for, and they don't know why they're unsatisfied. That's why churches all around, even if they're megachurches, have small groups, because they know that going into the Colosseum and seeing the worship production, and you say, what do you mean production? That's the verbiage. I'm in enough church tech groups to know, which is how we live stream and have a good PA system and everything else. You have to learn, and obviously I don't know anything about that. But it's literally a production. The verbiage is that it's a production. And so they invent small groups so people still have that family aspect. You say, what is a primitive Baptist church? It's a small group. We don't need a small group. We are a small group. And if ever the time comes, and I pray that it does, when we outgrow this building, we're not going to build... I don't want to build a giant coliseum to hold anyone else who could come. I want to branch out and constitute other churches in this county. Because that's what biblical Christianity does. How many times, and I have heard this, I have heard it, I have heard it. I've seen churches grow and build new buildings and the pastor didn't brag. But I have known churches that grew... Every sermon you ever hear the man preach, it's going to get dropped in there. We grew so much, we had to build a building. Back when we built the building, 101 lessons from what we learned in God when we built the new building, the whole everybody that came and joined under my ministry. No. You know what? It's not about building monuments to pastoral prowess. If we outgrow this building, we're constituting other churches, if I have anything to say about it. Because that's what Christianity is to do. It's not about filling as many people as we can in this building. It's about changing lives and worshiping God and permeating through communities. Permeating through communities. Learn that word. One of the examples that I used last week, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, was church growth. Churches grow so much of the time because people are working in the church. Now, for about a hundred years, we had the mentality among the old Baptists that if God wants them here, He'll what? He'll get them here. Now, if we're speaking of heaven, that's a true statement. God wanted people in heaven, and so He sent His Son to die for them so they can go to heaven. But as it relates to this particular church body... If we want people in this church, if we want to grow, if we want to impact a community, if we want to change lives, then we must go do the work that Christ has commanded us to do. Now, we wait on the Lord as we do it. We beg God as we do that. We rely on His power. We pray to Him for open doors. But church growth occurs the most when churches are healthy and out and about the work that God has called on them to do. Now, I've come to the point where I would rather use the phrase church perpetuity in a location than church growth. I saw a video ad this past week. You know, you get all these ads online. It was how to grow your church, pastor, how to grow your church like pastor blank blank. Okay, I'm not going to say the guy's name in the pulpit. To give you a little bit of a hint, though, The man is a rank heretic. I mean, one of the worst. One of the worst. The things that he says in his sermons, if I said that, I would expect you to throw hymnals at me. That's why we got a door right there. It's the escape hatch. I make you mad enough you start throwing hymnals, I can cover up with my Bible and get out the door. But if I said things like that guy says, then I would expect you to throw hymnals at me. Rush the pulpit, drag me out. <laughs> get me out of here. You know, get one of them big shepherd hooks and just exit stage left. Get out of there, man. How to grow your church like. That's what so many pastors are concerned with today, not for the sake of touching lives and helping people and perpetuating the church in a community, permeating a community, being the salt and being the light. It's all about growth. Because when the church grows under a man's ministry, it's just like when a business grows under a person's ownership or oversight. You get to thumb the lapels, you get to brag about it, you get to talk about it. But that's not what this is all about. We are servants of the Lord. You know, Paul, every time he opens up one of his epistles, he doesn't say, Paul, the celebrity preacher, the expert to whom you should listen because I've preached in X amount of cities and baptized X amount of converts. You know how he identifies himself? He says, Paul, a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're servants to you. We're servants. We serve you in the gospel of Christ. That's what this work is about. A couple of expressions that I would rather use. Number one church perpetuity how is the church perpetuated now the church is perpetuated through growth but that G word triggers buzzwords in our mind where we automatically think okay this is going to be a ten step program let's replicate what this church is doing so we can grow out, we can go out and grow in a community and everybody can know us and we can have a name and a reputation and everybody can come in and look at us and I'm sorry if that seems offensive I don't want to be offensive, you know me But that is, in pastor corners across Christendom in the West, that is so many times what's really going on. And so think of it in terms of church perpetuity. How is the church going to grow in this community? How is it going to expand? How is it going to permeate and be perpetuated here? Church perpetuity. Another simple expression Rather than think of it in terms of church growth, think of it as the work of the church. Because that changes the focus, doesn't it? This isn't about, let's go make Flint River a bigger church. First of all, I can't make Flint River a bigger church. You can't make Flint River a bigger church. But what we can always do is go about the work of the church. What is the work of the church? Well, that's what we'll talk about today and, Lord willing, next time. I don't know how far we'll go with it, but those are thoughts that I've had in mind and What I intended as the introduction became a page, and so as we were preparing for this, it suddenly became, rather than a sermon, it became a series, the work of the church. What is the work of the church? So many scriptures talk about it. Well, let's dig into that. Again, today focusing on what we would consider a healthy church atmosphere. Again, and as a final word, as a caveat, anytime we talk about growth, we run the, myth, uh, the risk of making it about a brand, or some several-step program that will make church growth happen. Now, one thing that we were guilty of in the 1990s was making it about the brand. What do you mean by that? This might be best left for private conversation, but you know the box is open, so let's walk through. Let's, let's uh, indulge this a minute. In the 1990s, in the Primitive Baptist, and in the 80s as well, we marketed our brand, Primitive Baptist this, Primitive Baptist that, Primitive Baptist this, Primitive Baptist that. The problem with that approach is we're not here for Primitive Baptist this and Primitive Baptist that, are we? No, we're here for Christ. And so when we look at it as let's market our brand, we take the focus off Christ, and you won't have lasting success in a church, lasting health in a church, lasting peace in a church, if we're focused on marketing the brand. Now, there's some things that we can learn from people who market. Sure, how to share what you believe with others, how to use digital media and other forms of communication to get the message in front of people. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember, this isn't marketing, it's work. This is work. Now, if you work as a marketer, I'm sorry, I just said marketing isn't work. It is. But when we're talking about church, this isn't marketing. This is work. We need to be about the work of the church. Number one, this is about glorifying God. And so everything that we do is to the glory of God. When church growth is attempted for the sake of church growth, the focus shifts from God. God. From glorifying him, do all to the glory of the Lord. Everything we do as a church needs to be to the glory of God. And number two, as we think about working while waiting, we're speaking in terms of being in a position to be used by God. So we wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, he'll direct your path. We wait on him, but we work. As we wait on him and we work, we find ourselves in a position that will be more suitable to be used by him in the work of the church in a community. A great example of that, we all know Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. But did you know what all happened prior to the Lord adding to the church daily such as should be saved? The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. There's your waiting on the Lord part. You know what they were doing when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them? They were in Jerusalem and they were waiting. Jesus said, Don't go out and preach yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. When He comes, then you go preach. Holy Spirit descends upon them with cloven tongues of fire. They go out and they preach in languages they've never learned. Thousands of people come into the church and you listen to what happens. What does the church do? Folks are baptized. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need, and they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, with, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with the people... And the Lord added daily to the church, such as should be saved. There was an atmosphere in the church, a real, vibrant, sincere atmosphere that facilitates a movement of God among them. In the book of 2 Timothy, we find this principle again. Verse 20 of 2 Timothy 2. In a great house there are, Not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Listen to this part. If a man therefore purge himself of these... Now, we're speaking of a man, a person, and his personal behavior with a house and vessels in the house as the metaphor. In other words, you're the house individually. In a house, you have honorable and dishonorable vessels. If a man purge himself of these, the dishonorable vessels, that is... He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. If we purge ourselves of unprofitable behaviors and thoughts and mentalities and ideas, then we are a vessel unto honor, sanctified, which means set apart for holy usage, and meet or appropriate for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. If we want to work, yes, we wait. If the church is to grow and thrive and prosper, yes, we wait on the Lord. Yes, God adds daily such as should be saved. But from those two passages, we see clearly that God uses His people when they are fearful and praying and working and loving and giving and, as we read in Second Timothy 2, meet or appropriate for the master's use. I can live my life in such a way that when God begins looking for a servant in a community, he can look at me and say, I'm not going to use this guy because his life does not line up with what my word says. And so God will pass and go on to someone else and use them for the work that he has to be done in a community. Remember, we're working while we're waiting, and we're considering a healthy church atmosphere. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 give us the agenda of the church in the world. What is the agenda of the church in the world? It depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. Well, let's ask Jesus what the agenda of the church in the world is. Don't you think that matters? You know, you ask some people, and it's like, well, it's the church's job in the world to take over and rule the government. Did you know Jesus never said that's the agenda of the church in the world? You know, every time that occurs, it ends very poorly for Baptists. Throughout church history, and I mean nearly two millennia, beginning with Constantine, when you have the merger of the church and the state, and the state begins to keep peace through instituting religion, they began settling the affairs of the church and the disputes within Christianity at large. Because of that, you had some leaders who catered to Arianism. You had some who catered to Gnosticism. You have some who catered to the theologically Orthodox in the Trinity. But then sometimes those that are Orthodox in the Trinity would practice things such as pedobaptism, child baptism, infant baptism, or sprinkling. And so we fast forward through church history and we see so many times when the state had religion merged with it, it's people like you who believe in believer's baptism who found themselves imprisoned and massacred, killed by the edge of the sword, burned at the stake over and over through church history. So, no, we we don't want... A combination of, of church and state. That always ends in a nightmare for our people. And anyone who studies history of our people knows that. We understand that. History is something that we should learn. We should learn history. We should study history. It's something that we need to be constantly digging into. We can save ourselves from mistakes of the past, What is the agenda of the church in the world? Verse 19 of Matthew 28, Go you therefore and teach all nations. Go teach. The word teach comes from a derivative of the Greek word that translates into the English language as disciple. Go teach all nations. Go make disciples of all nations. Everywhere you go. In the persecution of Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts, they that were scattered abroad because of his persecution went everywhere preaching the gospel. All of them. They all go everywhere preaching the word of God. Even though the apostles stayed at Jerusalem, all the saints go and they preach the gospel. What your job is in the world as a disciple of Jesus is to go everywhere sharing the word of God with people. That's my job. You say, it sounds like a very difficult job. (laughs) That's our work. To go and to preach, to share the Word. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. Neither were the people in Acts 8. you got little kids talking about it with their friends. you got college people debating it with, just put it in a modern context, with people who believe in evolution and Big Bang. You've got adults talking about it over the water cooler in the workplace. You've got grandparents talking about it with their children and their grandchildren. And the people their children bring over. Listen, we need to be people who go everywhere preaching the word. That's what God told us to do. What's the church need to be doing today? Do we need to be espousing crazy political theories like critical race theory? No, we need to be preaching the gospel. Do we need to be standing on street corners with signs screaming like raving lunatics at whatever political issue makes us mad that week? No, we need to be preaching the gospel. Simply preach the gospel. And by the way, might I interject that I absolutely despise the slogan. Maybe this should make it on the list of Christian slogans that are not sound. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. The word preach literally has reference to speech. If I'm not, preach the gospel, use words, what am I going to do? Sign language? Am I preaching it to you with my facial expression? What is this about? Bad knockoff episode of The Office? No. We preach with words. Words. And so without words, there's no preaching. Without preaching, the church isn't doing its work. Disciples aren't made. The church isn't perpetuated. The atmosphere's not healthy. Communities aren't impacted. We go and we preach the agenda of the church is to make disciples. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now think about that, because last week we talked about waiting on the Lord. When Jesus gives this instruction to them, look at verse 18. Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The last thing he says is, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So he begins this instruction, after rebuking them for their unbelief, by the way, he begins this instruction with, I have all power. Now go preach and baptize and teach, and I'm with you even to the end of the world. Amen. We wait and we work, and they're not mutually exclusive. But Jesus has all power, and he's with us. You said, I don't have the strength to go out and, and minister to somebody who's struggling with sin or unbelief or they're caught up in some sort of a heresy. You do because Christ is in you and Christ has all power. If I had to stand before you every week and share messages with my own strength and ability, I would be the greatest floundering failure in the pulpit. But I'm not standing before you. By my own strength. I'm not standing here today with my own wisdom, my own word, but I am enabled by the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit to share His word with you. And it's His word that I share with you, it's His wisdom that I share with you. I'm merely a slave of Jesus serving food to His people. We go and we make disciples. Never think for a minute, I just don't have the strength to do it. I may may not have the boldness and the bravery sometimes to do it. But if Christ is in me, the strength is there. A healthy church atmosphere is one of disciple making. Now you might be thinking, I thought the number one agenda of the church is to worship in spirit and in truth. And you're absolutely right. And those are not separate concepts. We go make disciples. What do the disciples do when they are made they worship in spirit and in truth. More and more closely to that example of spirit and in truth, the more they're trained. Notice the last thing he says about these people that are discipled and then baptized. They're taught to observe all things whatsoever he's commanded us. And so as we continue to teach and continue to teach, people worship in spirit and in truth and they grow in truth and they grow in spirit and they're mature and they're, they're discipled. Listen, only God can make a son, but he calls on us to make disciples. And we do that through preaching. A healthy church atmosphere is one of disciple making. This is the agenda of the church. A healthy church atmosphere is a counterculture. In the book of Matthew, chapter, excuse me, in the book of John, chapter 17, as Jesus prays to his father, he says, I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them. Do you know why Christians in Afghanistan now face so much persecution? The only thing that stood between it was our military. They suffer persecution because the worldview held by most in Afghanistan despises your Christ and thereby despises you if Afghanistan gets fixed the worldview has to be addressed the blunder that was made 20 years ago and I hate to talk politics this is more of world history now the blunder that was made 20 years ago was thinking we can go deposit western democracy in a place that's ruled by Islam that worldview is not conducive to freedom already we're seeing women told not to leave their homes journalists chased down by men and you know, turbans wearing AK-47s. The problem in Afghanistan is the worldview. You're not going to fix it until you fix the worldview. You know what fixes Afghanistan? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the only reason we're not barbarians in our day and age. I may get the live stream flagged and cut off, I don't know. It's not politically correct, but it's true. You know, these people in this country want to be woke. They want to be woke. Oh, we're woke. Capitalism bad. Boo, woke. Well, you know, why don't you woke people go complain about what they do to people over in these Middle Eastern countries? Anyway. John 17, I've given them thy word. The world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. A counterculture. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Counterculture. We're not taken out of the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Counterculture. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Where do we find strength and sanctification as disciples? We find it in the word of God as a counterculture. The church is a counterculture. And it's most biblical and effective when growing, as it were, underground. Did you know that in China, within ten years, it's projected that there will be 300 million Christians? Now, why is that number significant, 300 million? Well, that's just a little shy of the entire population of the United States of America. You know, we think of ourselves as a Christian nation, and in fact, we're actually a post-Christian culture, but a country like China, under the tyranny of wicked communism, an atheistic system of government, has as many Christians in it as we have people. The church thrives the most when it's driven underground in persecution. My heart goes out to all the suffering saints in Afghanistan. But this I know. The Lord of those people, those suffering Christians, the Lord of those people, He is not mocked. He will not let it stand. He will avenge every single one of them. But I know one thing. He'll publicly thwart his enemies by growing his church beyond the enemy's wildest imagination and worst fears in that culture. Because it has happened continually since the church was formed on the banks of the River Jordan. As the church is persecuted, the church goes underground. As the church goes underground, they grow and they grow and they grow because God is not mocked. The church is to ever be pursuing God's agenda of spreading his gospel. At the same time, in their personal lives, they are to be, as we will consider later, salt, which is a preservative, and light, which illuminates, from Matthew chapter 5. We'll turn to the book of Matthew chapter 10, and this is where we will pick up next week, because there's no way that we can Consider all of this together in the time that we have remaining. In Matthew 10, we find the model for the work of the church. You see, Jesus gave us a word that perfectly, truly furnishes us unto all good works. The church finds its instruction manual in the Word of God. Now, there are classes and classes and classes of different stripes and different orders and different types of seminary and school that teach what is supposedly the work of the church, but Jesus gave us the work of the church here in His Word. Matthew chapter 10, working while we wait. He called unto Him His twelve disciples, this is Jesus, He gave unto them power against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. He calls them and He empowers them. We find this pattern today. Jesus calls men to preach and Jesus empowers men to preach without calling and empowerment messages or dry lectures. They're not even fun for the guy trying to do it. If you have preached... And God is not with you in a sermon. You are of all men most miserable, and any of us who have tried, we know that feeling very well. Your face begins to get red. You begin to get a little sweaty up here. You get a little warm. I better take this coat off. Goodness, what is the temperature in here? And you just feel like, I can't wait for this to be over so I can try again next time because I'm struggling up here. We've all experienced it. But he calls them and he equips them. Gives the names of them, the twelve apostles. You can read that, I won't, for the sake of time. But then he tells them, go not to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans at this point, enter not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Initially, the gospel was sent to the Jews. And we find this transition even in the book of Acts where Paul says, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. The gospel was initially sent to the Jews. Jesus then, at the Great Commission, tells them to preach the gospel to all nations and unto every creature. That means all types of people, not just the nation of Israel, not just the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're lost in the sense that they're scattered about this region, and they don't have their land in the boundaries of Israel like they had at one time. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice, though, they go to the what of the house of Israel, the lost sheep. We're talking about God's children among Israel, not the goats. He begins with the Jews. He then goes to preaching the word to all. And then finally Paul turns to the Gentiles. And the nation of Israel is judged by God in A.D. 70. And the church has been a Gentile institution ever since. And that's the history of it. As you go, preach. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? Preach. They went everywhere preaching the gospel gossiping it, as it were, sharing it underground, communicating it to people, everyday people, normal people. Remember, in Acts 8, the apostles were still in Jerusalem, but everybody else is scattered and everybody else preaches. Everywhere we go, we preach. How many words in 2021 have been devoted to things other than the gospel? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Put the gospel in the heart. And it comes out the mouth. As you go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. I'm worried about America. But there's a kingdom that never ends. And it's greater than America. It was before America. It'll be after America. And Christ is its leader. And through His death and my rebirth by the Holy Spirit, I'm a citizen of that kingdom. You know, when my brother was in China, people realized that they were Americans, and they would stand around them and gawk. Josh's wife has blonde hair. And to them it was so strange seeing a a pale-skinned, blonde-haired girl from the Dakotas standing in the midst of Tiananmen Square. Those of you that lived through the 80s remember what that was all about. But they were amazed at the fact that there were citizens of America there. You know how much greater it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something more important than Rome or your Greek history or your Jewish heritage. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message of John the Baptist. It's the same message of Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 17. It's the same message of the apostles and it's the same message of the 70 that Jesus sent out to preach, two by two elsewhere. Go preach, the kingdom is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. When you go preaching, you're not a philosopher that gives you a lecture and then gives an invoice. But you simply go and you preach. And as you go preaching, in that day they could heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. But you know what? When we go preaching the Word of God today, did you know there's healing? There's healing of consciences and minds and hearts and homes. The gospel brings healing healing provide neither gold nor silver nor brass nor script for your journey neither two coats neither shoes nor staffs for the workman is worthy of his meat in other words while you go people will help you along the way and that's God's pattern that's the financial support of the ministry when paul wrote on it to timothy he quotes this and luke's rendition of this Whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire in it who is worthy, or there are, and there abide till you go thence. Inquire who is worthy? What does that mean? In Luke ten six, Jesus says, If the Son of Peace be there, your peace will return to you. If the Son of Peace be there, you go into a town, and if the Son of Peace is there, they react in a different way than if he's not. What does Jesus just say? The Spirit of God beats you to a community, preachers. You know, we kind of go in, God wasn't here till I brought him. You better think again. If the Son of Peace be there. The Holy Spirit works on hearts prior to the preacher getting there, which is why the gospel is received. Nobody believes that today but us. And you find it in church history, but it's unpopular because modern Christians cannot separate salvation from themselves. And so the only way to heaven is through us. Well, Jesus is saying if the Son of Peace is there, the Word will be received. Explain that without immediate spirit regeneration. And abide there till you go thence. When you come into a house saluted, if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. When people reject the Word, let me give you a, a statement from Christ that gives you a lot of peace. When people reject Christ's Word, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Him. And so our response at rejection is to shake the dust of our shoes off as a testimony against them. What we find in Matthew 10, which is what we'll come back to next week, is what a healthy church atmosphere looks like on the ground. People go and preach. Lives are changed. The Son of Peace is found in communities, as it were. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ grows and grows and grows. Yea, permeates through communities and homes and families and lives are changed. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that... First of all, you would find us in such a shape that that you would use us for this great work in this community. Lord, we're to go and we're to preach. You've told us to do that. Let us do it not for the sake of our brand. Let us not do it for the sake of this church simply growing so this church can grow. But let us go be about the work simply because you've taught us to do it. Because we love people and we want them to experience the kingdom and the healing that You give. We pray, Father, that as we wait for Your Son's coming, that we would be working in His kingdom, occupying it, laboring in it, loving it, seeking it. Lord, let us, like the psalm writers of old, love Your house so much that we even love the dust thereof. Help us, Father, to be the church And help us to behave as the church. Forgive us of our many sins. Reinvigorate us. just Lord, we pray that you just fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we go everywhere preaching the gospel. And as the world darkens around us, let it grow that much more in the underground. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.